Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Hello, and welcome to the Urania Pharmaceutical second quarter earnings call and webcast. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. If anyone should require operator assistance, please press star zero on your telephone keypad. A question and answer session will follow the formal presentation. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to Glenn Schulman, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks all for joining us today as we discuss Arrhenius' second quarter financial results. Joining me on the call this afternoon are Peter Greenleaf, President and CEO, Joe Miller, our Chief Financial Officer, Max Kalau, our Chief Commercial Officer, and Neil Solomons, our Chief Medical Officer here at Arrhenia. Our agenda for today, Peter will provide a review of the Lucinus launch date, our outlook for the rest of the year, along with our ongoing clinical and regulatory activities. From there, Joe will discuss our financial performance in more detail. Uh, and then after some closing remarks from Peter, the whole team will be here and available for your questions. Note that today's press release uh, announcing our financial results and recent operational highlights are accessible from our website at www.areniapharma.com. It's also been filed on a Form 8K with the SEC and CDAR as well. And this afternoon, our, uh, we filed our financial statements and accompanying management discussion and analysis in our quarterly report on Form 10Q. Please note that during the course of this call, we may make forward-looking statements based on our current expectations. These forward-looking statements are subject to a number of significant risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. For a discussion of factors that could affect our future financial results and business, please refer to the disclosure in our press release and in our quarterly report and Form 10-Q and recently filed 10-K, which are publicly available on our website, uh, along with all of our recent U.S., SEC, and Canadian Security Authority filings. Also note that all the statements made today during the call are current as of today, August 5th, 2021, and based upon information currently available to us at this time. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any such statements as of this date. With all that, let me turn the call now over to Peter, our CEO and President. Peter? Hey, thanks, Glenn. And I want to thank everybody for joining us this afternoon. So through the first half of 2021, we've made significant progress against all aspects of our company's strategy. And today, we're gonna to walk you through the four major areas of focus for Arenia and provide you with details on our execution and results achieved to date. The first and by far the most important at this stage is our progress with the US launch of Lupkinus for the treatment of patients with active lupus nephritis. We will briefly walk you through work, the work we are doing to expand access to loop kindness, which includes our global regulatory filings and our continued focus on generating new data for patients living with LN. 
From there, we'll provide you with an update on our financial position in Runway as a company. And then lastly, we will touch on where we see Arrhenia strategically and operationally by the end of 2021. After all this, we'll open up the microphone to you all to see what questions you may have. So here we are, we're well into the summer and just over five months into the Loop Kindness launch. I guess needless to say, we've generated a lot of data points up to this point to supplement our pre-launch research and continue to learn more now that we actually have entered the real world environment, including lupus nephritis patient characteristics and healthcare professional attitudes and behaviors. With this ongoing understanding of the market, and just under two quarters of commercial availability, our, co our confidence with Lupkinus remains undiminished. Let's start with the primary key metric for the second quarter, patient star forms, which as a reminder equates to Lupkinus prescriptions being written for patients. There were 415. That's up approximately 60% from the first quarter. We see this as a clear signal of generating momentum in the adoption of lupkinus. As you know, lupus nephritis is a rare disease. We've said that from the outset. The majority, if not all, of the medications used by physicians to treat the disease are unapproved generic treatments that have been used for the last 20 to 50 years. So prior treatment regimens are all the healthcare professionals and patients have known historically. Education on new products and adoption of new treatment approaches takes time, but I'm happy to tell you that our data and promotional efforts to date are having real impact. Next, let me walk you through our revenue performance for the quarter and provide some context, because there's a positive message here as well. In Q2, we generated $6.6 .6 million in net sales. This number exceeded consensus expectations for the quarter and shows the type of ramp we have expected with a new drug and an indication that did not historically have an FDA-approved treatment. We believe this, in combination with the prevailing winds of the COVID environment, is a significant result. Okay, let's move on to some other positive trends. As of today, patient star forms are well north of 800 to date and our conversion rate to patients on therapy continues to increase from what we last reported at the end of Q1. On the payer coverage front, Lupkinus is currently covered for over 110 million lives in the United States, and we are continuing to pursue further coverage. To provide some added granularity behind that number, there are, as of today, at least 50 published Lupkinus clinical coverage policies. Importantly, the prior authorization requirements across these policies are very much in line with the package insert. And in fact, the restrictions are less onerous than what we had originally expected. All are reasons to be optimistic. We believe this trend will continue to grow for the remainder of 2021 and drive down our time to starting therapy and drive up our overall conversion rates. In addition, I can also report that the rate of prescription abandonment to date so far has been low. And so far, albeit it is early on in the launch, our rate of compliance is also exceeding our initial launch expectation. In the face of these results, we have also experienced some challenges and acted on many key in-market learnings. 
The pro most prominent of these, of, of course, is the pandemic. Now, I think you've all heard the impact of COVID on patients, either postponing or canceling care and treatments for all types of conditions. But I'm here to tell you that the impact on lupus nephritis patients has been partic particularly problematic. Treatment used by patients is down no matter which metric you look at. Almost 10% of LN patients completely exited the healthcare system in 2020, while diagnostic kidney biopsies, which is how lupus, lupus patients are diagnosed with lupus nephritis, are down 22% compared to before the pandemic. So the addressable pop population of lupus nephritis patients was reduced by a material extent just as we were approved for use. Of course, this impacts the initial rate by which things can initially ramp up. But regardless, the pandemic-related factors that have impeded access to health care today will recede and hopefully refer back to pre-pandemic levels over time. And we are also being proactive and have implemented definitive steps to help identify more patients more rapidly and drive loop kindness adoption. Our sales, marketing, and medical affairs effort have together made an important impact for patients. The team has conducted more than 30,000 calls on target clients to date. This is due in part by us taking an early stand on vaccination, and I'm glad to report that nearly all of our field force has been vaccinated. The Arinia team is also gaining greater access to healthcare professionals as COVID restrictions begin to ease which is especially noticeable in the Northeast and out in the West regions. The percentage of live calls also increased from the first quarter to 80% of interactions versus where we were the last quarter. And internal and external market research has reported that loop kindness efficacy message is resonating favorably with healthcare professionals with a high level of recall. The implication of that is that more clinicians we can visit and communicate this powerful message to, the more prescribing will result. Through all of these efforts, we have seen the physician intent to treat continue to increase. We are seeing both the community and the large lupus centers and increased responses from both rheumatologists and nephrologists. While we always aspire for more, I can tell you that our efforts to date have been on target. Knowing there's more to do, we will continue to execute with tremendous urgency, and our entire Arinia team remains committed to realizing the true potential of loop kindness for patients living with lupus nephritis. So with all this in mind, I wanna provide some guidance on where we feel the full year will shake out. I'm often asked this, and while we still think it's very early in the game, we would like to provide some steer on how, how we see the first year revenue landing. Based upon a number of factors, including the current growth rates, expected conversion rate improvements, payer reimbursement, attrition rates, and our compliance estimates, we believe that our 2021 net revenue will land in the range of consensus and currently forecast net revenue between 40 and 50 million for loop kindness after the first 11 months of marketing. Now I'd like to shift our focus beyond the U.S. 
and on to our efforts to make baclosporin a global therapy. We're pleased to announce that in June, that our ex-US partner Atsuka submitted the MAA for baclosporin seeking regulatory approval for the treatment of adults with active lupus nephritis in Europe. With the application filed, we still expect a standard 12-month review cycle, meaning that the CHAMP opinion would, should be made around mid-2020, followed by an EMA decision anticipated in the third quarter of 2022. Just as a reminder, approval in the EMA will result in the achievement of additional milestone payments of up to $30 million to Arinia, as well as the ability to earn low double-digit tiered royalties on sales, along with further revenue for supplying the product to Atsuka. This all has potential to significantly strengthen our future financial position as a company. With regards to regulatory support and work going on for the JNDA filing in Japan, we alongside of Atsuka are currently engaged in discussions with the PMDA. These early conversations have been encouraging and we look forward to providing updates as definitive filing timeline is determined. So alongside of our globalization efforts, we continue to drive new data for loop kindness in 2021 and beyond. We see this as key to our objective of evolving the treatment paradigm. So let me recap. This past May, we announced a supportive interim analysis of the Aurora 2 continuation study, showing that individuals that were treated with loop kindness sustained meaningful reductions in proteinuria with no change in mean EGFR at 104 weeks of treatment. The Arrhenia team remains on track to achieve database lock for the Aurora 2 blinded two-year continuation study by the end of 2021. We are therefore updating our guidance and will report top-line data from Aurora 2 by the end of this calendar year. We believe Aurora 2 will be critically important to support the longer-term treatment of LN with loop kindness. In addition to Aurora 2, the team is finalizing the protocol and working to initiate VOCAL, which is the adolescent trial of voclosporin and lupus nephritis, as well as the protocol for a lactation study with voclosporin, which is all in alignment with our FDA post-marketing commitments. Additional phase four work includes a lupus nephritis registry that we are initiating to explore additional real world usage of loop kindness. And the research team is also evaluating novel dosage formulations of voclosporin, including both oral and topical applications. Now moving on to the financials. Obviously one important question is, how much cash do we have on hand and is it enough to actually get us what we need to accomplish? With a cash position in excess of $320 million, we remain sufficiently capitalized to fund our current operations and execute on our longer-term strategy. While we don't run a static business here, things can always change, of course. We have no immediate needs to raise money. Something I'm proud to say that not every company in our position can report at this early stage of a launch. 
Our earlier cash runway guidance into 2023 remains consistent. Outside of performance, I'd like to take a moment to highlight some recent board changes. One of our long-term directors, Dr. Michael Hayden, retired during the second quarter, which provided us with an opportunity to appoint Dr. Brenda Balakrishnan to fill the seat. Dr. Balakrishnan is a Group Vice President of Corporate and Business Development at BioMarin, where she leads initiatives on corporate strategy, mergers and acquisitions, partnering and licensing. We look forward to her contributions to the board and leveraging her experience and guidance as we continue to build Arenia. Finally, on the long-term strategy front, the company continues to evaluate strategic opportunities through external business development. We remain focused on identifying the right autoimmune disease assets for the right indication in an effort to provide our stakeholders with long-term value. We remain committed to building out and diversifying our pipeline, and we expect to make progress on this key objective by the end of 2021. So to sum it all up, we are seeing positive trends across almost every aspect of our business. We remain confident that we have a significant commercial opportunity with Loop Kindness. And we know that we have the right team, the right product and approach in place to get there. Well, I'll circle back at the end of the close to, call th to close things out. I'd like to now pass the baton over to Joe Miller, our CFO, to provide more color on the financials. Joe? Thank you, Peter, and good afternoon, everyone. As of June 30th, 2021, Arenia had cash, cash equivalents, and investments of $323.7 million compared to $423 million at December 31st, 2020. We are devoting the majority of our operational efforts and financial resources towards the commercialization and post-approval commitments of our approved drug, Loop Kindness. Taking into consideration the cash and cash equivalents and investments as of June 30th, 2021, we believe that our cash position is sufficient to fund our current plans, which include funding commercial activities, including our FDA-related post-approval commitments, manufacturing commercial drug supply, conducting our plan R&D programs, funding our supporting corporate infrastructure, and investing in our pipeline into at least 2023. Total revenue was $6.6 million and $29,000 for the three months ending June 30th, 2021 and June 30th, 2020, respectively. Total revenue was $7.5 million and $59,000 for the six months ending June 30th, 2021 in comparison to the prior year period. Our revenues primarily consisted of product revenue, net of adjustments, for loop kindness following FDA approval in January of 2021. Cost of sales were $308,000 and $0 for the three months ended June 30th, 2021 and June 30th, 2020, respectively. Cost of sales were $356,000 and $0 for the six months ended June 30th, 2021 in comparison to the prior year period. This increase was primarily the result of our commercial sales of loop kindness. Gross margin for the three and six months period ending June 30th, 2021 was approximately 95%. SG&A expenses increased to $43.8 million for the three months ended June 30th, 2021, compared to $15.4 million for the three months ended June 30th, 2020. For the six months ended June 30th, 2021 and June 30th, 2020, SG&A expenses were $83 million and $26.5 respectively. 
The primary drivers for the increase for the three and six months ended June 30, 2021, as compared to the prior year period, were an increase in salary, incentive pay, and employee-related benefits, and share-based compensation expense related to the expansion of the commercial and administrative functions to support the launch of loop kindness following FDA approval. In addition, there was an increase in professional fees for activities such as patient assistance programs, consulting, recruiting costs, legal, market research, and other marketing-related activities. R&D expenses were $10.1 million and $11.1 million for the three months ended June 30, 2021 and June 30, 2020, respectively. For the six months ended June 30, 2021 and June 30, 2020, R&D expenses were $19.9 million and $24.9 million, respectively. The primary drivers for the decrease were lower CRO expenses and other third-party clinical trial costs, together with a decrease in clinical supply and distribution costs following the approval of loop kindness. The, de the decrease was partially offset by an increase in employee-related expenses. For the quarter ended June 30th, 2021, Arena recorded a net loss of 47 million or 37 cents per common share as compared to a net loss of 26.5 million or 24 cents per common share for the quarter ended June 30th, 2020. For the six months ended June 30th, 2021, Arena recorded a net loss of 97.4 million or 76, 76 cents per common share as compared to a net loss of 52.5 million or 47 cents per common share. With that, I would like to hand the call back over to Peter for some closing remarks. Peter? So thanks, Joe. And again, thank you all for taking the time to join us this afternoon. In closing, we hope you have a clearer picture of the early launch trajectory and our belief in loop kindness and the success of this company. With our metrics across the board continuing to show positive results, we are making a difference for people with serious autoimmune diseases. We look forward to providing additional updates in the months and quarters to come. And I'd now like to turn the microphone over to the operator for questions. With that operator, please feel free to open it up to Q&A. Thank you. We'll now be conducting a question and answer session. If you'd like to be placed in the question queue, please press star one on your telephone keypad. A confirmation tone will indicate your line is in the question queue. You may press star two if you'd like to remove your question from the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary to pick up your handset before pressing the star keys. Once again, that's star one to be placed in the question queue. Our first question today is coming from Alethe Young from Cantor Fitzgerald. Your line is now live. Hi, this is Emily on for Alethea. Thanks for taking our questions and congrats on the solid quarter. I'm curious, um, what are the factors that you're seeing to be most helpful in driving rheumatologists and nephrologists to prescribe the drug based on your education efforts? And maybe as a follow-up, do you have any feedback on how physicians are thinking about duration of treatment? And if you think the Aurora 2 data later this year could potentially help them make that, those decisions? Thank you. Yeah, why don't I, well, thank you very much. And uh, why don't I start, and if I miss on anything, I'll, I'll uh, jump to Max Kalau and see if he has anything to add. I think it's a multitude of different factors that are helping us uh, to, to get initial prescriptions. One, uh, you, you have to point first at the data uh, and the compound. Without that, I think, you know, you always have a challenge to market any drug. Um, it is a data-driven cell. We have to um, not only walk the physician through um, uh, the data that we've, we've been able to develop, develop and deliver through phase two and phase three, 
but I think it's also important that we have to deliver that with a, a specific patient in mind. So patient uh, profiling, patient identification, helping the physician come up with a patient in mind is, has been critical. Um, I can't emphasize enough, I guess, that this is a, a very strong um, clinical cell and uh, you know, our, our reps are, are trained to do so and, and that's probably the, the single biggest driver to um, you know, getting a patient on the drug, that and identifying the right patient. Um, to your question uh, on, the, uh, on the Aurora 2 extension trial and its importance and expectations around uh, physician dosing, I think this is something we're, gonna, we're, we're learning about, right? And, and um, it's our expectation that, that when we position the product, that physicians are looking to reduce, um, you know, their overall levels of, uh, of proteinuria, um, but to do that over time because the data that's out there shows that if, if, if proteinuria is not kept in control over time, that these patients have worse outcomes and can move on to more severe disease and even death if they're not treated. Um, and that's generally, that's not just with our drug, but, but if they're not treated aggressively. Um, so I think physicians go in with a mindset that, that they're, they're, they're putting this, patients on this drug, not just for induction, but to maintain uh, the patients over time. The Aurora 2 data is going to be important because remember, um, our initial approval was based upon one-year data. And throughout the year, we've, um, we've done cuts of the data at major medical meetings and we've been able to produce data to show um, continued control of, of proteinuria, as well as um, you know, no negative, at least through this data set, um, no negative impact on kidney function as it's measured by, um, by GFR, AGFR. Um, so it's important, and, and we think this data is gonna be very helpful as we move into our second year of launch and patients looking to get on another year of treatment for those early ones that we got on early in the launch. So we think it's going to be important. Max, did I miss on anything there? No, I think you, you hit it perfectly. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question today is coming from Justin Kim from Oppenheimer & Company. Your line is now live. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the questions and congratulations on the progress. Um, just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about the 50% conversion rate. Do you have any insight as to what proportion of those unconverted start forms continue to be executed compared with sort of those having run their course? And additionally, sort of which forms may or what proportion could be challenged at somewhat of a coverage pair level? So um, here too, let me, let me start, but um, I, I think, you know, as any initial rare disease launch, um, I wouldn't even call it a challenge. I think, you know, uh, the initial, um, you know, process for getting a patient on drug involves some paperwork and involves a prior auth in most cases. And, and that alone is, is an initial hurdle you need to get over. But, um, you know, on this rate, Max, is there any color you want to give, um, you know, sort of below the 50, this 50% 50 plus conversion rate that we reported that uh, uh, you think is important? Um, you know, sure. I think... Go ahead, Max. Yeah, no, as Peter highlights, um, you know, there, there's some paperwork involved, uh, you know, uh, to, um, to get access, and, and that takes a little bit of time. So really, at, at any point in time, we may have 20 to 25% of the start forms that are work in process, uh, where the prior offs are being completed, there may be some appeals that need to be done. 
So, um, and, you know, and, and then there's some of the start forms that, that are canceled, but as Peter highlighted in the call, the cancellation rate that we've been seeing is relatively low, especially when we compare ourselves with, with benchmarks. Um, so our cancellation rate is um, less than 20%. Uh, and we see with benchmarks 25 to 35%. So, so I, I think that's, you know, that's a way to think about it. Always some portion that's work in process and then, uh, you know, the rest go to patients on treatment. Okay, got it. It's great to see that sort of number tick up from, from the prior quarter. Um, just on the start forms, the, the sort of rate at which I think the third quarter shaping up looks to be somewhat flat. I'm just wondering, is, is there sort of a seasonal effect you anticipate with the summer um, in terms of start forms and, and just any thoughts there? Uh, I, I didn't catch uh, the comment on what, where you see the rate of uh, start forms, but I, what I would say is, um, you know, we're, we're, we're interested in looking at the impact of, of how the summer months affect both patients coming into the offices, patient, um, you know, consistency, you know, consistency of patients staying on drug, and of course the activity of physicians prescribing the drug. And what I can tell you in the early uh, start of the month, you know, data through July, that's a little bit of color under, underneath those numbers we reported, is that I would say there's consistency. Um, you know, and, and our, but our back half of the year numbers obviously continue to show, um, you know, progressive growth in those numbers in order to achieve um, what we projected as uh, our revenue range for the year. Okay, got it. Um, and just maybe a final question. Uh, you know, with the data that you're seeing, it, it seems encouraging how, how patients are getting on therapy and staying on therapy. Just wondering if the 65,000 net price per patient is something that we should still expect and how we should think about COGS as a percentage of, of that number. Yeah, I'll give COGS to Joe, but um, what I would tell you is I think our abandonment number is low and we're happy about that. And or even in this early stage, I think that's something we can track and, and, and feel good about. I think on the persistency side, and that would be, you know, patients starting on um, prescriptions and then continuing on them, those numbers are, are even better. Um, but it's so early in the game um, that, you know, we have to watch that over time. Um, you know, patients have, we have to see patients on drug for six months, a year, year and a half, two years before we really know what our ongoing persistency rate is going to be. Um, but I can tell you early in the launch, it's less than 10% and it, that are going off of drug, and, that, and that's a good number even at this early stage. On the average net, all I can tell you is that we are, we are consistent or, or above um, where our average net um, we projected, which was 65,000. Um, and again there, I think we need time to continue to see how that shapes. Um, but we are not below, and, uh, and, and as I said, we're either on or above, which is which I think is a good positive trend going forward. Joe, you want to take COGS? Yeah, you know, I, I think you saw some consistency between the margins uh, in Q1 and Q2. I would say, you know, if you're looking out forward, um, there might be slight fluctuations quarter over quarter, but I would say it'd be reasonably consistent with what you saw in the first two quarters of this year. Great. Thanks so much, and uh, congrats on the progress. Thanks, Justin.
Thank you. Our next question today is coming from Maury Raycroft from Jeffrey's. Your line is now live. Hi, everyone. This is Farzi Non from Maury. Uh, thank you for taking our questions. So just to clarify about the BD plans, so uh, do you have plans to explore loop kinase in other proteinuric kidney indications, or do you have plans to in-license assets? And sort of timing for those. Yeah, so um, the, the question, just so so my, my team could, could all hear that because it was a little muffled on my end, was on our BD plans and how much of our, um, uh, both our development and, um, and our external work uh, evolves around um, loop kindness and how much of it's external. I would say this, I, I, and, I, and we said this on previous calls, um, our intention is to invest in further understanding, further exploration and depth first in loop kindness in the area of um, uh, uh, LN. And then, you know, second to that, any further work we would do would be through um, probably non-registration work. Um, we don't have intents to go into other broad-based kidney diseases. And, and the reason for that is not necessarily mechanistic. It's probably more based upon our ability and or inability to continue to drive further intellectual property. If we can find ways to extend that longevity, then we might change our view there. Um, we are doing some formulation work, which is centered around both, um, you know, maybe some, some other ways to administer the product and have some um, elements of intellectual property around them. Um, more to report there when we have something meaningful enough to do so. Um, the other elements of business development center, center, center totally around diversifying our portfolio. And what I would say is, um, you know, as we said in the call, our goal is to make, start making inroads on that front in 2021. So expect to hear more from us soon there. Great. Uh, one more question is, has Lupkinus been prescribed to newly diagnosed LN patients yet? Uh, as we said, even on the first call, and I'll repeat uh, for the year, I'll repeat it here, the product's been prescribed across, I would say, the continuum. Um, so meaning, you know, earlier stage patients and um, later stage or tougher to treat patients. But I would say the majority of our, the patient typing we're getting right now um, is our, our patients that have seen MMF and steroids and, uh, and are probably a little bit of the tougher to treat patients, which was exactly what we expected when, uh, when we launched the drug. Our goal over time doesn't change our positioning. We position the product how it was studied, which is for a broad range of patients. But our goal over time is gonna to be to move further and further down in the treatment paradigm. Got it, thank you so much. Thank you. Our next question today is coming from Ken Cacciatore from Cowan & Company. Your line is now live. Uh, hey, Peter and team. Con congratulations on all the progress here as well. Just wondering, as you indicated, as we're getting more and deeper into the launch, you know, one of the, the questions that we're often asked is, do we have a good handle on the, the size of the patient population still? And, and you are out there doing real-time survey work, as you indicated. So, just wondering feedback and your view of the, the size of the, of the market. And then wondering, um, as you have more and more interactions, um, anything surprising coming back to you when we talk to clinicians, a little bit of the, the kind of wedded to the, the previous uh, uh, products that they've been using and 
getting a sense that this patient, uh, this clinician group in general, kind of wants to socialize amongst each other, hear from key opinion leaders. Can you talk about what you're doing on that front to, to try to help have the, facilitate that kind of clinician-to-clinician interaction? Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ken, uh, and good questions. Uh, so I, I think we'll stay consistent here, Ken, with what we've said on the patient population from the start, but I'll po provide a little bit more of a drill down. Uh, in terms of the overarching sort of diagnosed patient population, we think there's probably somewhere, and of course these are estimates, 80 to 120,000 patients in the U.S., and that we've said in the past, we think that number outside the U.S. can probably be replicated, uh, you know, through Europe and, and, our, and what little Japan work that we have. So it's a sizable patient population. Now, there's a caveat to that. As you go further down in sort of disease severity and where patients are in the continuum of their disease, whether they have active lupus nephritis, whether what drug therapy they're on, um, what stage of disease they have, that number whittles down. So back to the previous question on, you know, are you getting, you know, newly diagnosed patients? You know, eventually to grow this thing to the point that we're going to want to grow it to, we're going to have to continue to press down earlier in the treatment paradigm, which I think, as everybody knows, our data supports because we, we studied a wide range of patients. But today, it feels even more like a rare disease because the patients we're hunting for are probably more of those patients who have seen at least a course of MMF and steroids and still have active disease, which is a much smaller N. And today, I would hesitate to put an exact number on that. As we learn more, um, we'll, uh, we'll most likely provide more, more detail on, on what we're learning, um, which I think leads a little bit into your, your second question, which was, you know, is, is there a tendency in what we're seeing for physicians to, you know, not be aggressive in adoption of new therapies and sort of, sort of be wedded to what they've done? I, 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 it was pretty purposeful, the commentary that we put into the, uh, the earnings call um, around, you know, new therapies where, F, where there have not been FDA-approved medicines in the past in these areas like lupus nephritis where physicians have been using the same therapies for, for decades, um, that it's a little, it, it takes longer to educate, to gain comfort, um, and to get physicians to be more aggressive in terms of how they treat and try to lower proteinuria. I would say rheumatologists um, are probably a little more aggressive on that curve than our nephrologists, and I think that has a lot to do with the onslaught of new innovation that's been driven into rheumatology, and maybe as it pertains to certain um, rare kidney diseases where there hasn't been as much um, new innovation. So what we're doing about that is we are driving it in our clinical messaging. We're trying to go as early as possible. We're overly educating in how we train our, our, our representatives. We are trying to do peer-to-peer -peer programs. We're trying to drive um, thought leader-driven speaker programs. Um, we're working hard with our medical science liaisons. 
um, both in the field and at the major medical conferences, and we're trying to continually produce data and continue to move forward, not just with the data we have, but new data, so this is fresh in the minds with those treating physicians. So I'd say it's the, the continuum of tactics you would expect on the medical education front. Yeah, Peter, and what I would add to that is, um, you know, in our market research pulse surveys, we consistently see that when we ask nephrologists or rheumatologists, we consistently see that more than half of them, their intent to prescribe leukinus is, um, is more than 50% of them have an intent to prescribe either in the next month or the next three months. And just to add a little bit of color to the extent of our effort around education over the, you know, since launch, we've We've, uh, we've run more than 500 peer-to-peer uh, -peer programs that involve healthcare practitioners as well as, as KOLs. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Ken, anything question. else? Our next question is coming no. from David Martin from Bloom Burton. Your line is now live. Uh, good afternoon and congratulations. Um, Couple of questions. Are, are you seeing any off-label use um, with cyclophosphamide? Uh, I don't know. That, I don't have specifics on that, but I would say it has not come up in our conversations in combo with cyclophosphamide. But I know we have such a wide range of patients um, that uh, it's probably in that mix, but if it is, it's minimal. Okay. And you mentioned low abandonment. Um, we're still relatively early um, in the adoption of the drug. In discussions with physicians, do you get a sense some, any of them, will treat to remission and then withdraw the patients from treatment, or is this going to be uh, chronic? Uh, it's really too early to tell from data, but I can tell you, David, that our messaging and our positioning is centered around the data and we don't speak about or, or talk about the drug with, with physicians in a induction and maintenance sort of mode. We talk about the importance of controlling proteinuria over time, but it'll play out in the data. We'll know more when we start to see patients, you know, six months, a year, two years, and I think, you know, it's kind of early to tell from just the straight data. Early data is good. Okay. And then what about uh, with Ben List, uh, you know, launching around the same time as you, are, are you getting a sense now of what kind of patient doctors are putting on Ben List uh, versus Leukinus? Um, or do some doctors just treat all their patients with Leukinus? How, how is that splitting? Yeah, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch this one to, to Max Kalau because we were just talking about it yesterday, and it's something that we, we do look at. Max, you want to you wanna take this one on? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the data we have on that is anecdotal and then also, again, through our um, market research pulse surveys. But what we hear is that um, with nephrologists and rheumatologists both is that they do um, position uh, Benlista and Leukinus really for different types of patients. And the Leukinus patient that comes um, to the forefront is that patient, as Peter mentioned, with high uh, level of proteinuria where there's a sense of urgency in terms of bringing the proteinuria down quickly. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that patient may be on MMF and steroids currently. The, um, you know, in, in our pulse surveys, when we look at the intent to prescribe 
between Benlista and Lupkinus, it's actually it's it's around the the same type of intent to prescribe. But again, we believe that that's due to the physicians are thinking about different patient types uh, in apportioning that out. Okay. Um, uh, next question. Uh, you had a question about the trajectory of the patient start forms. Uh, the math I've done, it looks like you um, added, uh, I think, about 165 in second quarter, and now you've already added 135, you know, just uh, a little beyond the first quarter in Q3. Uh, that looks to be accelerating. Is my math right, or am I missing something here? Uh I think what you're doing is, in those numbers, you're putting quarter over quarter additional patients. So remember, in quarter two, we had 415 for a total of up to date north of 800, right? Um, So in thinking about growth quarter over quarter, we really haven't guided to that, David, because, and not because we're trying to be tricky, it's because, you know, based upon the numbers we've projected out, a lot of different scenarios can happen. We try to drive patient start forms every day. That's, that's the number one objective. And then once we get those start forms, to get those patients on, on commercial medication as quickly as possible. But different things can happen, like our average net price can be different. It can be more, it can be less. Whereas to get to our forecast, you know, it, 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 the variability and all the metrics that feed into that can 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 be there. That I don't think that's a bad assumption to think about is growth on top of the growth rate that we put forward in in quarter two. To think about that in an additive way going to the back end of the year, um, because I think if you add an average net on those patients and you assume a certain conversion rate, you can you can probably get to a good idea of how we got to the numbers we had. Um, and I hope everybody appreciates, I mean, we wanted to give some fear on the year because we get asked so often, but there still are a lot of parameters we're dealing with that are non-COVID parameters based upon, you know, persistency, average net, et cetera, that could all move around by the end of the year. Okay, great. And I do have one other question if I can. Um, you mentioned the target patient is kind of defined by, at least right now, having failed MMS and steroids. Um, it, from your own trial and from other trials, we see MMS and steroids, you only get about 20, 25% of patients remitting on those. So is, is that remaining 75 to 80% your target population right now, or does it cut down smaller than that? Well, I think there's there's two parts to that question in my mind. There's where we are and then there's where we want to be. Um, I wouldn't say that our data limits us to just those patients that are failing MMF and steroids. They just have to have active disease. They can be newly diagnosed patients and once initiating MMF and steroids add us into the mix for a newly diagnosed patient. I that that's the where we want to be and where we, we sort of position the product today. But more often than not, where we're ending up are patients with active disease that have seen a course of those therapies already. And that obviously is a smaller piece of the pie, although we haven't really given numbers as to how how big that is, because we ourselves are still working to understand that. Okay, thanks. That's it for me. Thanks, Dave. 
Thank you. Next question today is coming from Will Sajikian from SVB Lyric. Your line is now live. Great. Thanks for taking my question, guys, and congrats on the uh, continued progress this quarter. Uh, so circling back to some of your pulse surveys, uh, it looks like about half the respondents indicate that they plan to prescribe Leukinus, but could you provide any additional color on when these prescriptions are being made? Uh, for instance, is it occurring mainly when patients are experiencing a flare, or is it happening during the next patient visit? Uh, is there a kind of a sense of urgency here in, in getting patients on treatment? So any color there would be helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and I'll ask for Max to, uh, to help me out a little bit here, but the, uh, I think the essence of your question is when we see a pulse survey of intent to prescribe, how rapidly are we seeing that materialize into actual prescribing behavior? And I, I think it's, it's generally variable. We have seen it tick up. And I will tell you, now that we're seeing more improvement in the COVID environment, i.e. patients getting back into physician offices and our reps being able to get into offices, that it's improving. But I'm not sure that we have an exact quantification of how quickly it takes a survey to materialize into actual action. Max, do we have anything on that? No, and, and I think, you know, kind of the perspective on this, and as, as Peter highlighted, this is a rare disease, right? And most of the patients are in the community setting. And in that setting, on average, a, a physician may have four or five LN patients in total as, of, of their whole practice. So it's not that they're seeing these patients on a daily basis and not even on a weekly basis, right? So the intent to prescribe is how they're digesting, in my mind, is how they're digesting the data and how they're thinking about positioning. And then it's the, when the opportunity comes. And clearly, as you highlighted, the urgency clearly drives prescribing. And when that, if that patient is presents at the next um, visit with a very high level of proteinuria, and by and large, most patients are with MMF and steroids, right? So if they present MMF and steroids, high level of proteinuria, Lupkinus is going to be top of mind from a prescribing standpoint. From there, there's a discussion with the patient, gaining agreement, going through the, 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 uh, the process, the access process. So, so that, that's, that's all, you know, kind of how it works. So you can't really tie, you know, hey, 50% next month is going to realize this. You know, it's, it's a matter of the flow of the patients as they work through the practice. Okay. Operator, do we have any more questions? Once again, that's star one to be placed into question queue. One moment, please, while we pull for further questions. I'd like to turn the floor back over for any further closing comments at this time. Okay. Well, and with that, I again want to thank everybody for joining us today. We're encouraged by the results we've seen to date. But we obviously have more work ahead of us, and we look forward to updating you again in the near future. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. That does conclude today's teleconference and webcast. You may disconnect your line at this time and have a wonderful day. We thank you for your participation today. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.